I want to start off today's episode of the Sports Pen with an apology to you, the listeners. And I'm apologizing because I have been burning the coffee extra strong today. Here's what happened. Over the weekend, I relaxed, I rested, I got plenty of sleep, I felt energized, charged. Then I did something stupid. Then I decided to have a Die Hard marathon and get like four hours of sleep, watch all three Die Hard movies like back to back to back. I like the Die Hard movies. I unfortunately also like sleep and haven't gotten a lot of that, so we're going to make it through today's sports pen. I'm going to be hitting the coffee pot strong here frequently, but we're going to get through it and we're going to have a good show today. We've got play to break down. We've got Dave Burkett, the Lions beat writer from the Detroit Free Press. He'll join me in about 15 minutes to discuss the 2019 Lions draft class. Plus, something really special happened in the Tiger minor league system last night. Something really encouraging for Tiger fans. We have got hockey to break down. We've got the NBA to look forward to. All that more is going to come up over the next hour here on ESPN-UP. I'm Tanner Hoops coming at you for the last time in the month of April. Isn't that crazy? We turn the calendar to May already tomorrow. But I come at you as I love to do five times a week here on ESPN-UP. Die Hard, I tell you, I love that movie. It's one of my favorite movies ever. It is a Christmas movie. Don't let anyone tell you different. Here's the thing, though. I noticed a goof in that movie, and there are a lot of goofs in that movie. If you look online, it's kind of amazing how big of a film this is and how many goofs in production that you can find. But for me, there's one that stands out. It doesn't ruin the movie, but it's all I could think about because it happens about a third of the way through. And I bet you that 90% of you, 99 even, 99% of you have never picked it out before. It's right after Reginald Vell Johnson's character is first introduced. He's a cop. He's Detective Al Powell. He stops by the Nakatomi building. He got the distress call. Terrorists have already taken over the building. One of the terrorists is at the front desk. He's disguised as a security guard. So when Reginald Vell Johnson first enters the building, the terrorist disguised as a security guard is watching TV at the front desk. Remember what was on the TV? It was football. It was the Notre Dame-USC football game. I took special notice of that for obvious reasons. I thought, Notre Dame's winning. The Battle of the Jeweled Shillelagh. They were doing a lot of winning back in 1988. Lou Holtz was still coaching. Here's the thing, though. Notre Dame and USC play every year during the regular season. The regular season ends thanksgiving weekend then you start playing bowl games Die Hard's a christmas movie why would notre dame usc be playing on christmas eve that should have been reginald vell johnson's first clue that something was wrong at the nakatomi building after that you know the movie wasn't ruined for me but there was still two-thirds of the movie left and that's all i could think about i started to think i'd be a pretty good cop if i decided to go that route they decided i like where i am you know especially after watching the rest of the movie so that's what I've been watching. Haven't watched Game of Thrones, never seen an episode. I don't know what a Night King is. I don't know what Bran or Rhea or whoever these people are. I, all I know is Daenerys. I hope I'm saying that right. I don't know if Daenerys is a hero or a villain, but the only one I care about is Daenerys. So that's my niche in the sports radio department. I am going to be the one show that you can rely on that isn't going to give you Game of Thrones spoilers. Avengers either. I'm not cut up enough on Avengers. I have not seen Endgame. I heard it's great. I don't know. I'm not going to be LaShawn McCoy. You don't have to worry about any spoilers coming from me. It is a sports pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Thanks again for hanging out with me on your Tuesday afternoon. The NFL draft, two different sports in the playoffs. MLB is in full swing. Taylor Swift dropped a new album. If you don't like Taylor Swift, man, you're wrong. you got to hear that latest album. It's a banger. 
I've seen T-Swift in concert. I don't care what anybody says. I like T-Swift. I could ramble on about that for probably the rest of the week, but I want to start today by talking about quarterbacks. More specifically, I want to talk about the way the NFL has changed its approach regarding young quarterbacks. And with that, I want to start where the draft started, with the Arizona Cardinals, and how inept that front office is, because new details are emerging regarding how poorly that front office handled the Josh Rosen trade. Drafting Kyler Murray first overall, for me, that was a no-brainer. For me, that needed to happen. Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury, that needed to happen, and I'm glad it did. But you think about Josh Rosen and what he went through. Maybe the biggest mark against Josh Rosen that you've heard from the NFL analyst is his attitude. It's not his mechanics. Again, I didn't see a lot from him that I liked in college. It made me think this guy is really going to translate to the NFL. Everyone says that his mechanics are there. I mean, maybe they are. If his attitude is his biggest knock against him, I think he just put all those worries to bed. Because look at the way Josh Rosen handled this whole situation with Arizona. Wondering, is he going to be the starting quarterback for the Arizona Cardinals coming up this fall? Or is he going to be somewhere else? Likely, he's going to be put on the trading block. The team made it clear he was a backup plan. He was a fallback option. General Manager Steve Keim even texted Josh Rosen's agent that, in so many words, he was expendable. Again, I'm not high on Josh Rosen. I hope things work out for him in the NFL. I'd like to see him succeed. I don't have anything against him. I just haven't seen enough from him to make me think he is going to pan out in the NFL. But I give him a ton of credit for the way he handled this situation with the Arizona Cardinals compared to how poorly the Cardinals handled it. The other thing is, why did you need to shop Josh Rosen, and why did you do it for a 64th overall pick? Who says that Murray and Rosen couldn't coexist in Arizona? It's not like it's a salary cap issue. They're both on rookie contracts. They're both affordable. Who's to say that Kyler Murray is going to pan out in the NFL, and who's to say that he's going to stay healthy? Wouldn't you rather have Josh Rosen instead of Sam Bradford? But instead, the Cardinals decide to trade him, and I get that. You picked this guy 10th overall last year. You want to get something back for him. But the 64th overall pick, as late of a second rounder as you can get, is that really worth it? Do you really feel like you can get something at the end of the second round that's better than at least a capable backup quarterback? Maybe not an outstanding quarterback, but at least a capable one. Was that really worth Arizona pulling the trigger? If it were me, I would have hung on to Rosen. I would have paid both him and Murray, both on rookie contracts. It could have done it. I would have invested my backup quarterback just in case something went wrong with Kyler Murray. Now we get to see how the Miami front office handles things. Because they are in a situation where it looked like they were all in to tank for Tua. Tank for Tua 2020. Maybe tank for Trevor. Now suddenly they've got a quarterback and there's a little optimism out there. And it's true that Rosen doesn't have a lot of weapons out there right now. But you got to believe that Miami was interested in making Josh Rosen their franchise quarterback. So even if they tank, who are they tanking for? Are they tanking for Tua? Are they tanking for Trevor? Or do they feel like they have their quarterback now? I'm not sure if Miami knows what they're building. What I am sure about is this is the right time to invest in a young quarterback. This is the right time to draft a quarterback in the first round. NFL teams are changing the way they coach quarterbacks, and that is leading to a lot more success out of young quarterbacks. Let me throw some numbers at you. Since 2015, 16 quarterbacks have been taken in the first round. That includes the three who were drafted last week. Of the 13 guys who played last season, 
six of them made the playoffs. So six out of 13, almost half these young quarterbacks made the postseason last year. Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, Deshaun Watson, Mitchell Trubisky, Carson Wentz, and Jared Goff. And yeah, throw an asterisk up next to Wentz because he got hurt and Nick Foles was the one who technically got him in the playoffs. But Wentz had a part of two playoff runs in his Eagle career. As for the other seven who didn't make the playoffs last year, a lot of them have found roles as franchise quarterbacks. Baker Mayfield looks like he's going to be the quarterback in Cleveland for a long time. Same with Sam Darnold in New York. Josh Rosen and Josh Allen, both of them struggled during their rookie seasons, but it's too early to say that they're busts. Marcus Mariota, a franchise quarterback in Tennessee. Unfortunately, his health has been his biggest nemesis. Jameis Winston, you can say what you want about him, but he still is Tampa Bay's franchise quarterback. So regardless of performance, 12 of the 13 quarterbacks that were taken in the first round since the 2015 draft are franchise quarterbacks right now, the only exception being Paxton Lynch. Would it be safe to say that as of now, Paxton Lynch is the only true bust out of that group, out of first-round quarterbacks drafted since 2015? A stretch like that has been really unprecedented in the NFL. So why are young quarterbacks starting to achieve so much success right away, or at least early on in their NFL career? It's because NFL coaches are adopting the offenses that these quarterbacks ran in college. That's why Cliff Kingsbury was hired. Stephen A. Smith and all those who criticize him, they can say what they want. They can say that Kingsbury is a bad hire because he had a losing record in college. Truth is, he knows how to run an offense. And that's what the NFL is becoming. It's becoming full of coaches who run college-style offenses so that these young quarterbacks can be immediately plugged in and make an impact into an offense they're comfortable with. Jared Goff is a prime example of it. Jeff Fisher wanted Jared Goff to run Jeff Fisher's offense. Sean McVay comes in, and he runs a college-style offense, something that Goff is familiar with. I don't think Goff is an outstanding quarterback, but he's been to a Super Bowl. I mean, there's no way that Jared Goff is better than Aaron Rodgers, but they've been to as many Super Bowls. And Goff got to a Super Bowl quicker than Rodgers did. I wouldn't put Jared Goff and Aaron Rodgers in the same tier talent-wise. But if you're running the same offense that you had success with in college that made teams want to draft you high, then it becomes a whole heck of a lot easier to be able to translate to the NFL. That's why I believe that if Kyler Murray stays healthy, that him plus Kingsbury is an absolute home run. Because Kingsbury is going to implement the style of offense that Kyler ran at Oklahoma, and he's going to light it up just like he did. Now granted, he is playing against NFL talent, not Big 12 defenses anymore. But he's a natural playmaker. I believe he's ready to take that next step. I believe Dwayne Haskins is ready to take that next step. And maybe there's reason to believe that Daniel Jones is ready to take that next step because of that reason. Because Pat Shermer can flat out coach a quarterback. This is a guy who took Case Keenum within one game of making the Super Bowl just a couple of years ago. The work that Shermer's done with his son, who's been playing Division I football at a high level, who himself looks like he's going to be a great draft pick here in a couple of years, Shermer can flat out coach a quarterback. He can design an offense that will benefit a quarterback. Is Daniel Jones a human highlight reel? No. But neither's Jared Goff. If you put the right system in place for a young quarterback that he can step in, doesn't have to learn a whole new offense, but he can run the same thing that made him successful as a college quarterback, it can work out. You don't have to have Aaron Rodgers or Joe Montana or a naturally gifted quarterback. Young NFL quarterbacks are having more success than they ever have 
because the NFL is adopting college offenses. It's happening more and more, and that's why you see so many old-school coaches lose their luster. The knock against Tom Brady and the only asterisk on his career, people are going to say that he's a system quarterback, that he'd have never gotten his six rings without Belichick, that he's cis Tom Brady. That's going to be the biggest argument against Tom Brady as being the greatest quarterback of all time. But you know what? What's wrong with being a system quarterback if it's going to get you success? He's gotten longevity, and he's gotten success since coming into the NFL. Some guys have longevity, but they don't get the success. Sebastian Janikowski, recently retired, is a great example of that. Was in the NFL 19 years, played in a Super Bowl, but never won a ring. You can get guys that have had success, been to the Super Bowl, won it like Joe Flacco, but the longevity's not there. As long as you've got a head coach that's helping you win rings and stay in the league for really half your life, which Tom Brady has to this point, is being a system quarterback all that bad? Whether Tom Brady's success is attributed to Belichick or not, he's winning Super Bowl rings. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. He's a legend. And there's very few people that he would trade lives with. Now let's be clear, Tom Brady is not as successful as he is because Bill Belichick runs a college offense for him. Bill Belichick runs an offense designed for Tom Brady, not for a guy right out of college. And for the record, I don't believe that Brady's a system quarterback. Does having Belichick help? It absolutely does. But you got to have talent to be able to do what he does. I mean, let, let's face it, come on. The way the NFL is trending in regards to quarterbacks, it benefits young guys out of college taken early on, and it benefits young coaches, specifically guys with experience at the college level in high-octane offenses. That's why I believe Matt LaFleur is going to do really well in the NFL. Packers are going to look more like a college team on offense this year. And I tell you what, I think Aaron Rodgers is going to love playing in a college system. But does that mean there's no place in the NFL for a veteran quarterback in his 30s? Or is there no place in the NFL for a veteran coach who hasn't had experience recently at the college level? It absolutely does not mean that. The fact that there are young kids coming out of college who are having more success than ever does not mean that a guy can't be successful outside of a college offense. That's where good coaching comes into it. That's where good coaching has to take effect. You don't have to run a college offense at the NFL level to be successful. You can modify your playbook and change it with the modern game. That's what Andy Reid has done for his entire career. Andy Reid's playbook evolves more than any other coach, probably in NFL history. Andy Reid doesn't need a college offense to be successful. He's proved that before. But he is running a college offense because he can, because he knows that will benefit his young quarterback, a guy that's fresh out of college in Patrick Mahomes. And it did. If you're an NFL head coach, it's not a sign of weakness to adopt a college offense. If you have a quarterback right out of college, you're playing to that guy's strengths. You saw what made him successful in college, and you're going to bring that to the NFL because quarterback is not just another position. And coaches who are smart enough to know that and put their pride aside are the ones who are having success. With that, we owe you a timeout. When we come back, Lions beat writer Dave Burkett will join me. We'll break down the Lions 2019 draft class next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Danner Hoops with you. Time to recap the Lions 2019 NFL Draft. Join me as the Lions beat writer, Dave Burkett of the Detroit Free Press. Dave, appreciate you taking the time. How's it going? 
Doing well. Glad the draft is over. How about you? It's stressful, but at the same time, good for us. I tell you what, TJ Hawkinson, tight end out of Iowa, was the Lions' first selection. He came eighth overall. The reaction I'm getting from a lot of my listeners is, yeah, he's a good player. He was the best tight end in this year's draft. But did we really need to take a tight end with the eighth overall pick? What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really the only question about you know the the pick is 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 there enough value in the tight end position to take one at number eight? You know, in the top ten, now, Hawkinson's the highest tight end drafted since Vernon Davis in two thousand six. So certainly hasn't happened a lot. And if you look back at the history, you know, I think I think it's, he's the fourth one in forty years, and, and none of those other four. Vernon Davis has had a nice career, but you know, it's not like he's a Hall of Famer, I don't think. And and Kellen Winslow, and I forget the name of the other guy, but he only played five or six years, so. You know that you can certainly argue the positional value. I think for the Lions, you know, he fits what they want in the locker room. He's a culture fit. He's a you know fit on the field. You know, they want to use more two tight end sets. They want to be able to try and dictate how defenses play them. Um, you know, it was still a position of need. I think Jesse James was, you know, he's a good tight end, but he's you know backup caliber probably. You know, I, I don't know that he's a uh, he's going to be a starter on on most teams. So, um, you know, I think it checked off a lot of boxes for the Lions. Have you had any interactions with Hawkinson early on? How's he feeling about being a Lion? I was out in Nashville, so I, you know, got to see him a little bit out there. Look, frankly, I mean, we don't get to spend a ton of time. You know, I did get a little one-on-one with him after he got done going through the car wash of interviews and signings and meeting with the NFL sports partners and all that. Um, you know, they brought him into town the next day. Look, I think you know he's he's about football. Uh, you know, it's a it's a culture fit in, in that regard for him too. I mean, he came from an Iowa program where. Kirk Ferentz is very close to Bill Belichick, and by extension, you know, that, that relationship obviously, um, you know, goes to the Lions, too, since they try and copy everything that the Patriots do, and, and Matt Patricia and Bob Quinn both worked under Bill. So I think there's a, you know, there's a little bit of a sense of familiarity there. It should work well for both sides. He seems to be the safe pick, if you want to go that route. He seems like the guy that should pan out in the NFL, that makes sense to draft. Do you get the sense that for Bob Quinn, this was the safe pick, kind of like a Taylor Decker, or was this really the guy that the Lions wanted they couldn't pass on? Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's sort of how Bob has, has drafted in all four of his drafts at GM. You know, he's taken a very safe player up top, somebody that, you know, you, you can absolutely see getting to a second contract in the NFL. There's there's not a lot of, there's not a, there's not a huge risk there, you know, for whatever reward you're going to reap. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's some value in that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of times when players bust out and, and don't reach their, you know, their talent. And, you know, the Lions are looking for these pillars that will be around for a long time. And we saw, you know, the Lions picked up Taylor Decker's, you know, 50-year option. I imagine they're in line to do the same with Derek Davis and Frank Ragnow, and that would be the hope with Hawkinson as well. So, it, you know, it remains to be seen how, how his career plays out on the field. But that's certainly been Bob's M.O. as, a, as Lions general manager here these first few years. Looking at day two, Hawaii linebacker Jelani Tavai taking number 43 overall. Tell me about him. What do Lions fans need to know about him? Well, I think that's the big mystery of the draft, right, is, you know, that's another guy that maybe the value didn't quite seem there at the 43 for the Lions. I mean, Tavai was, uh, look, frankly, I didn't know anything about him before the draft. And, uh, you know, I, I reached out to a few sources around the league, made some uh, – some scouts, uh, you know, that had, had scouted some of the, the colleges and including him out west. And, you know, I got mixed feedback. I mean, some guys said he was a clear, you know, day three pick. Some guys said that, look, at the Lions waited, he wasn't going to be there in day three and he probably wasn't going to be there for their third round pick. So, um, I, you know, 
he's another guy that, you know, big thumper in the middle, doesn't run super well, coming off a shoulder injury. Uh, you know, versatile, can play a couple different spots in the linebacker core, a lot of what they want at the position, and there weren't many of those big linebackers in the draft. So the Lions, they, they seemed to target that position, and he was sort of the last guy available that made any sense for them, and that's why they jumped on it at 43. Well, the Lions took Boston College safety Will Harris with their third pick, 81st overall. What can you say about him? Well, I'll tell you, Harris was the guy that I got, you know, uh, I would say, you know, even worse feedback on, I guess, than, than Tavai. I mean, there mm. were a couple of people across the league that sort of scratched their head at, when I asked them about him, at least, just on the value there. They, they just, look, he's a fast safety. He's got some speed. Uh, you know, ran the 4-4 range. He, you know, played for Paul Pasqualoni or with Paul Pasqualoni. I guess Pasqualoni is the defensive line coach at Boston College, now the line defensive coordinator. So there's a lot of familiarity there, some leadership. But, um, you know, in a strong safety class, I had some people ask me you know, what what the value was there for the Lions. So, um, you know, I look, I, I think Tracy Walker's probably your starter at safety right now. Uh, you know, opposite Quandre Diggs, that is. Harris is going to have to come in and earn a spot. He, you know, got a little bit of cornerback in the background, so he can he can play some of that too if necessary. Uh, we'll see. I, you know, the one that I got the most feedback, positive feedback on was the fifth round cornerback out of Penn State. Uh, I'm the butcher's last name, so I'm just going to call him Amani Arayu, as is, is maybe I think mm-hmm. how you pronounce it. But you know, he's another guy got some length; he can run a little bit. Um, I think that's the sort of their lottery ticket that you know if they can clean up some technique things, get him to play. You know, maybe uh, maybe that's a guy that a couple years from now you look back at the draft and say, all right, maybe they had something right there. Austin Bryant coming off a national championship with Clemson. Take him at number 117 overall. Get a little bit of an edge rush out of him. What did he look like early on? Yeah, we'll see what sort of role he has. I mean, you know, he's another guy that's coming off injury. You know, he said he's okay right now. Uh, played through it in the, the the national championship game and really Clemson's playoff run. You know, he was sort of the the fourth of, of Clemson's great, you know, defensive line that they had wasn't didn't quite measure up to the prospect status of those other guys but look big guy you know he's long he, he'll, he embodies a lot of what the Lions want in that defensive line you know they don't need elite pass rushers or they don't seem to you know maybe put as high a value on that as, as some other teams they want these guys that can really set an edge and you know will really you know big guys that can help them stop the run and you know you can move them inside you can play them outside you can do some different things and so from that standpoint Bryant kind of is you know, that's that's what he is. I mean, he's not going to be a 10-sack guy in the NFL, but that doesn't mean that he's not going to be a productive player for him. Dave, tell me, uh, before we move on to some of the later picks, let's just recap some of the guys at the top. Is there a comparison in the NFL right now for a guy like TJ Hawkinson? Is there a tight end that you see right now and you think, this is probably the best-case scenario for Hawkinson to translate into the NFL? Oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, look, I don't know that he's quite as fast as like a, a Travis Kelsey or somebody like that. You know, that was a, a name when I was asking some scouts around that, you know, they just about the Lions in general the other day. And they're like, well, he, you know, Hawkinson's a really good player. And the one thing is, you know, he doesn't have elite traits. It's not like he ran a four five forty, or, you know, it's not like he's, he's Jimmy Graham height where, you know, he just goes up and snags every jump ball that there is. So, uh, but I think, I think he's a really good player. Hawkinson is the one. The one name that that people have brought. Well, the two names, I guess, that people have brought up. You know, um, during the pre-draft process, Rob Gronkowski, and that's just pipe dream. Look, if you're if you're anything like Rob Gronkowski, you're gonna, be, you know, he's, he's one of the best tight ends ever to come out. So you don't want to put that that comparison on somebody. Um, you know, Jason Witten, another Hall of Famer. That that sort of 
that's another name that, that people said, you know, maybe that's the, the best case scenario. So again, you're throwing these, these hall of fame comps at on people. I would not want to put that on, you know, any sort of incoming rookie, especially someone that you haven't, you know, you haven't seen uh, up close and personal and do all those things. But best, best case scenario, I guess that's what you're looking at because, you know, he, he can be a tremendous run blocker as, as well as a guy who can impact the passing game. Talking with Dave Burkett, the Lions beat writer for the Detroit Free Press. Dave, I want to throw one more at you. I've seen comparisons to Tavai, the linebacker out of Hawaii, and Kyle Van Noy. Again, you get the Patriot connection. A lot of similarities between those two writers, say. Would you agree? Uh, you know, again, I don't I don't have any good base of knowledge to, to put that on. I, you know, he's uh, I didn't watch him at all coming up through the draft. I saw there were some, you know, one writer in Pittsburgh had, had thrown that comparison out there. I, that's not a I haven't heard that from any NFL people, so I don't I don't really have a good answer for you there. I tell you what, looking ahead to a lot of the late round picks, you have Fulgum, Johnson. Out of those day three guys, which of them really has the chance, the potential to surprise some Detroit fans on Sundays? Well, I mentioned the cornerback from Penn State. I, I think that would be the guy that, you know, probably has the the best chance just because of some of the you know the traits that he has. I think that's a lot of times what you look at when you're looking for some of these upside surprises. You know, he's he's long. He's six one. You know, six two. Uh, he can you know, like I said, four four eight forty somewhere in that range. So it's not like you got T's Tabor. Um, so I, I think he's a guy that certainly you know could that you want to dream about a little bit. Um, you know, the other guys, it's always hard for for those guys to hit. It, it really, it is for anybody. But but you know, I. I don't know that I would be in the market of predicting Travis Fulgham to, to you know, all of a sudden be the next Kenny Galladay or, or P.J. Johnson to be the next Damon Harrison. I mean, certainly you could look. Johnson is a big body. He's 340 pounds. He's going to be a run stuffer like Harrison, and, and maybe that's, you know, with Damon Harrison's contract situation, maybe they grab P.J. just thinking that that's some insurance that they can have for down the road, uh, you know, in case things don't work out with with uh with snacks and they you know this is the last year for him so you know pj johnson could be a guy i guess out of these late round guys that you you can see have an opportunity to to some sort of you know bigger role maybe than a normal seventh round pick would have in in due time well dave now that the draft is in the books where is the lions biggest need position wise is there any position group they didn't bolster enough in the draft well offensive guard you know they they didn't draft an offensive lineman, and uh, they didn't take an offensive lineman in the draft. And I, I know a lot of people sort of scratch their heads at that. Um, you know, I thought there was maybe an opportunity to do that in the middle rounds, but I subscribe wholly to what Bob Quinn said: is that on, on day three, you don't want to reach for a position. You know, you just want to take the best guy available on your board because if you do that, you take somebody that's much lower graded at a position of need. Well, guess what? They're a day three guy for a reason to begin with, and then you're always going to be looking to, to fill them. You know, to replace them. So they signed a couple undrafted guys that will throw in the mix. They still have Kenny Wiggins. They still have Odea Boucher. Um, you know, obviously Terrell Crosby if they want to. I think they have enough sort of journeyman types right now to, to fill that spot, but that would be still the, the biggest weakness on the, uh, the, the team, I think, right now. So I don't know if there's an opportunity to fill that anywhere else, but that would be the one spot I would say keep an eye on. You know, they, they, they might still have room for another receiver, too. Don't know who's out there at this point. And, and obviously they drafted Fulgham, so he's you know, he would be in line to be the number five guy right now. But I don't know that their receiving core is, is striking fear in anybody. Kenny Galladay, Marvin Jones, and then after that, Danny Amendola and Tommy Lee Lewis. 
Well, Dave, not much of a surprise. Yesterday, the Lions pick up the fifth-year option for Taylor Decker. Tell me about that move. Oh, totally expected. I mean, you know, came back from that the torn labor that he had, um, you know, in 2017 with a with a pretty fine year last year. You know, blindside protector doesn't you know didn't miss much time last year. Play started every every game for the Lions. So, you know, a situation where uh, you know you don't have to make a decision on getting him a new contract yet. You got another year to buy yourself some time. I think the Lions could be in the uh, the mix to to give Graham Glasgow an extension this summer, and uh, you know they can. They can wait and see what, what shakes out with Decker. But Decker right now, like I said, he's trending towards a second contract with this team. Dave Burkett is the Lions beat writer for the Detroit Free Press. He joins us on the ESPN-UP phone line. Dave, really appreciate you taking the time. Look forward to talking again, hopefully soon. Sounds good. We'll talk to you later. Let's take a time out. Coming up, we'll recap the NBA and the NHL playoffs from last night. Plus, we look ahead to tonight's matchups and breaking news out of the Tigers minor league organization. That's all coming up in the next half hour on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. You're listening to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Thanks for hanging out with me in your Tuesday afternoon. Just across the bottom of the hour, here's your Sports Center update. Cody Bellinger sets a new MLB record with his 37th RBI before the month of May. Bad news for the Dodgers, however, A.J. Pollock is heading to the DL with an elbow infection. Elsewhere, Fenway Park will be the newest host of a college football bowl game. Coming up this season, Boston will be one of three cities that will get a new bowl, along with Los Angeles and Myrtle Beach, and the site will be Fenway Park. There is now a record 43 bowl games, including the college football playoff national championship game. So basically, if you win five games, you're making a bowl. Remember when they used to be special? And finally... Think back a few months ago, I talked about a Coca-Cola factory in Texas. They had a vat overflow, and the soda spilled out into the streets, flooded about two blocks. Something similar just happened, but in Germany, and it happened at a chocolate factory. A vat of liquid chocolate in world Germany overflowed, and about one ton of liquid chocolate flooded a German street. That is your Sports Center update, and we turn our attention to the NBA, the NHL, the playoffs in full swing for both. Let's start with the NBA. A lot happened there last night, and a lot's going to happen tonight. Philadelphia won north of the border, taking down Toronto 94-89. to They even that series at a game apiece as they shift to Philly. I'm convinced that Nick Nurse has one facial expression in the postseason, and it's always his jaw dropped, like that one emoji where the eyes are bulging, and the mouth has just dropped. You had the Joker outduel Damian Lillard, both of them with fantastic games, but Jokic and the Nuggets come away with the win. They take a one nothing series lead over the Blazers. You've got the Bucks and the Celtics tonight. I don't think it's too early to say it's a must-win for Milwaukee. I think they got to win at least one of these two in Milwaukee to start the series. And, of course, you've got Houston-Golden State. And despite all of that, the biggest storyline in the NBA is what happened a couple of days ago. And that's still the final minute or two of Game 1 between the Rockets and Warriors. Really, what happened after that, the aftermath as well. James Harden remains adamant that he was fouled going up for a potential game-tying three-pointer with under a minute to play in Sunday's game. Instead, it went as a no-call. The official said that Harden was trying to initiate contact, that Draymond Green allowed Harden room to land safely, 
and the Rockets went on to lose the game 104-100. After the game, Chris Paul was fined $35,000 for making contact with an official. That came right after the shot in question. He made contact with an official after getting teed up, and it was the second tee of the game, so he was subsequently ejected. Later on, the Rockets filed an official grievance with the NBA, not about Game 1, about Game 7 of last year's Western Conference Finals. They contend that enough calls were missed in that game that it cost Houston a chance to go to the NBA Finals last season. Here's the thing, I've said it before, I don't think Houston is the best equipped team to be able to beat the Warriors in the playoffs. Are they good enough? Yeah. They're the two most talented teams in the Western Conference. But this is exactly why Houston is not equipped to beat the Warriors. You're filing a grievance about last year's playoffs. I mean, focus on this series. You've got a whole new shot at it. You played well in Game 1. I mean, yeah, some stuff didn't go your way, but you played well enough to win. How cliche is it when somebody says, you can't move forward if you're still looking back? Well, it's true. It's true, they're filing a grievance because of Game 7 of last year's Western Conference Finals. They are doing it now, almost a calendar year later. This is why Houston is not going to beat Golden State in this series. Now, in all fairness, after Game 1, officials admitted to Coach D'Antoni that they missed four foul calls on Houston three-pointers before halftime. That's equivalent to 12 free throws in a four-point game. That's huge. That's huge. So I can see where Houston's coming from, but what good does it do to file a juncture for Game 7 of last year? That's what I don't get. Are officials perfect? Absolutely not. They're going to miss calls, but they're going to miss calls both ways. It's part of the game. Unless you're a member or a fan of the two teams invested, you absolutely want them to get the call on the court right. Unless you're one of those, you're just like me, a basketball fan of somebody else or a casual NBA fan. You don't want to see the officials decide everything. You don't want to see them call everything ticky-tacky. You want to see the game decided by the players, not the officials. I mean, let's be honest, Harden initiates contact more than anybody else in the NBA. How many years ago was it that he had that game where he scored 30-something points? 22 of them came at the foul line. He was like 3 of 8 from the field, but 22 of 25 at the foul line. So this juncture has caused the NBA to go back and review the final two minutes of selected games. And they found, and again, this is per NBA League officials they announced this morning, that 97% of the time the officials made the correct call in the final two minutes of the games that they selected to watch. You know, 97% is pretty good. MLB did something a few years ago when they were testing the electronic strike zone, trying to see how many calls a human umpire got right as compared to a machine. The human umpires got 95% of the calls right, according to the electronic strike zone. So actually, the NBA is getting it right just a little bit better than the MLB. But the thing is, for those involved, it's that 3% of the time the officials don't get a call right that matters the most. And that's what the Rockets feel happened not only in Game 1 of this series, but Game 7 of last year's Western Conference Finals. And I totally get that. Now, I'm somebody that if I'm an athlete and I'm investing, this is my lifestyle, I want what I work for. I want to achieve what I deserve, what I've invested my life in. I totally get that. I totally agree. But the thing is, the shot in question, the shot that led to this juncture being filed, he wasn't fouled. James Harden was not fouled on that three-point shot in the final minute on Sunday. For me, that's where things really started getting ridiculous. And then Steve Kerr, the Golden State head coach, decided to take it another step. 
He was mocking James Harden at his press conference yesterday by bumping into a reporter and then pretending to stagger back as if he were flopping. He was initiating contact like Harden's known to do, trying to draw a foul. First of all, come on, dude. You're the coach of a team that won 73 games and historically choked in that year's finals, had to beg a top two player to join your team, and thus ruin the NBA to the point where the drama that happens off the court on social media is more interesting than the product that the NBA puts on the floor during playoff time. So with all that in mind, we get a witness game two this evening. If you're staying up to watch it, 10.30 tip-off here in the Eastern Time Zone. Game 2 between the Rockets and Warriors. By the way, you can hear it right here on ESPN-UP. We'll be carrying the ESPN broadcast. You can hear it on ESPN-UP, AM or FM, or online with our app. Adam Amin and PJ Cartlismo will have the call. For me, the most interesting thing that I'm going to be watching for tonight, and this, I might stay up. I'm tired, but you know what? I want to see how the Rockets react to Scott Foster. Veteran official Scott Foster, who the NBA announced has been assigned to officiate tonight's game. And the reason that's going to be so compelling for me, and it should be for you, is because of Foster's long-storied feud with the Houston Rockets. The last time that Scott Foster officiated a Houston Rockets game was February. James Harden was criticizing him after fouling out in Los Angeles and was later fined. That was just the latest incident of many in this long-storied feud between Foster and the Houston Rockets. It comes at a time where the Rockets feel like the officiating's against them to the point they have to file a juncture with the NBA. How is Scott Foster going to call tonight's game? The NBA officiating crew is under fire from one particular franchise, and he just so happens to have beef with that franchise, whose game that he's officiating tonight. Really a must-win situation for Houston. Here's the thing. I think Scott Foster's a professional. He's been doing this a long time at the NBA level. I don't think his personal bias is going to influence how he calls the game tonight. But if Houston starts playing aggressive, they turn up the intensity and Golden State starts getting a few foul calls to go their way. To everybody, at least wearing red and black, it's going to look like Scott Foster has a personal vendetta against Houston. And then they're probably going to file another juncture. In all fairness, it is important to point out that Scott Foster being assigned to work this game is not the NBA retaliating against Houston for filing a juncture after Game 1 criticizing their officials. Officials are assigned to what NBA playoff series they're going to work before the series starts, so this was all known before Game 1 that Scott Foster would work Game 2. That, for me, is going to be the most compelling thing tonight, which is almost a shame because it's going to be good basketball. I'll watch a 7 o'clock game between Boston and Milwaukee, and then I'll probably watch Die Hard again. I'll find something. Either Roar, Celtics, and Bucks tonight, it is a must-win for the Milwaukee Bucks. They cannot lose both at home and go to Boston down two games to nothing. Here is your stat of the day. Changing up the stat of the day music because we've got a special one. The Boston Celtics have a chance to do something tonight that's never been done in the history of the modern NBA playoffs, which dates back to 1984 when seeding was first implemented. No team lower than a three seed has ever started the playoffs 6-0. They have never won their first six games, anything lower than a three seed. Boston, who swept Indiana in the first round, won game one against Milwaukee, has a chance to become the first tonight. I'll say that one more time. No team since the NBA started seeding the playoffs back in 1984, no team lower than a three seed, Boston's a four, 
has ever won their first six games of the postseason. Boston can do that tonight with a win at the Pfizer Forum. All right, let's switch over to the NHL before we hit the break. A wild Stanley Cup playoff last night as St. Louis takes a 2-1 series lead, winning 4-3 at Dallas. A wild third period is what decided it. The Blues led 2-1 after two periods, and the score held for most of the third, but with under seven minutes to play in regulation, Dallas tied things up with a shorthanded goal. But they were just getting started. Alex Petrangelo scored his first goal of the playoffs a minute 18 seconds later to give St. Louis the lead once again. But just over 90 seconds later, Tyler Seguin scores his third of the playoffs and they're all even at three apiece. Patrick Maroon was the hero, however. A little flick of the wrist with a minute 38 left and the puck drops over the shoulder of Ben Bishop into the net. Proves to be the winner. St. Louis takes it 4-3. to three. So St. Louis takes a 2-1 series lead. Jordan Bennington continues to impress a save percentage of 9.03, 28 stops for the Rookie of the Year candidate. One of the three finalists. A couple of game threes tonight. Both series are tied as Boston visits Columbus for a 7 p.m. puck drop. Then San Jose will take on Colorado in Denver. That puck drop is set for 10. So the big question for hockey experts was after all the high-profile first-round exits, what would be the storyline? How would the TV ratings do? And actually, they're doing pretty well. Hockey postseason ratings are at a 25-year high, despite no defending champion, no President's Trophy champion, no Ovechkin, no Crosby, no Kane, no McDavid. None of the MVP candidates are left. All three Hart Trophy finalists are out. When you look at the eight teams left, you look at the media markets surrounding them, You've got New York, albeit maybe not the Bronx, New York. You've got Boston. You've got Denver. You've got Dallas. You've got some big hitters there. But the big hockey hitters, the perennials, the DCs, the Chicago's, the Pittsburgh's, nowhere to be found. And yet hockey playoff ratings are still at a 25-year high. And maybe one of the biggest reasons why is because of the lack of success between the eight teams still left. None of the field has won the Cup since 2011. That was the most recent victory for any member of the current playoff field. That was Boston. Three of the eight teams remaining have never won the Cup. San Jose, St. Louis, and Columbus. Carolina Cup champions in 2006 went through that playoff drought. They got in this year, and now it looks like there's no stopping them. Now they're suddenly betting favorites to get to the Stanley Cup final. Colorado hasn't won the Cup since 2001, the Rob Blake days. And two years ago, they were the worst team in hockey. Now look at them. Now look where they are. Credit Jared Bednar as head coach and the job that he's done. The Dallas Stars were starting Auntie Niemi and Nett just a couple of years ago. They were laughable. And then they pick up Ben Bishop. They build some pieces around him. Miko Heiskanen, one of the top defensemen that looks like he's going to stick around for a long time. A guy who Ben Bishop believes will be a Hall of Famer. They hit a home run hiring Jim Montgomery. And now they're looking for their first title since 1999. And of course, the New York Islanders, who had that great run back in the 70s and 80s, haven't won a cup since 1983. They're in trouble this year, though. they got to find a way to rally past a really good Hurricane team. They trail 2-0 as the series shifts to Raleigh. The 2019 Stanley Cup playoffs truly have become a human interest story. You have a lot of teams that aren't usually there. Someone who wasn't supposed to win the title is going to this year. That's what's made this so compelling despite the lack of superstars. With that, we owe you our last time out. When we come back, something really special happened in the Tiger minor league system last night. It's going to give Detroit baseball fans a lot of hope. Plus, 
Northern Michigan released their football schedule for the upcoming season this afternoon. We'll break it down next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. They'll go to Kawhi. He'll drive past Ennis in the lane into the corner. Green for three. Missed it off the rim, and Butler has the rebound. Still up eight. Here's Jimmy Butler all the way down court in the lane, hanging through contact. Shot falls for Jimmy Butler. 22 points and a chance for one more with 6.18 to play. What a big-time play for Jimmy Butler. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Thanks for hanging out with me as we wind down the workday this Tuesday afternoon. Casey Mize. If you don't know that name, you're going to want to. You're going to know it, whether you want to or not, pretty soon. The Tigers selected him first overall in last year's draft. He is their top minor league prospect. In fact, ESPN has ranked him as the fourth best pitching prospect in the minors right now and the 15th best at any position. My started this year at Class A Lakeland. He had a 2-0 record in ERA of 0.35, and he made his debut with Double-A Erie last night, and he did so in a big way, tossing a no-hitter as Erie got by the Altoona Curve, the Pirates' Double-A affiliate, one to nothing. Mize was dominant. His splitter was working well. He was everything the Tigers were hoping he would be in his debut. Really, it was nearly a perfect night except for three instances. A leadoff hit batsman to start the game, a walk, and a pitch clock violation. Keep in mind, in minor league baseball, they have pitch clocks. They give the pitcher a certain number of seconds to get the ball away. It ended up leading to an automatic ball. All in all, it added up to Mize's first professional no-hitter, although he did throw one last year when he was with Auburn. That came against Northeastern. Mize said afterwards it felt like he was an autopilot, but he credited his defense. A couple of diving catches kept the no-hitter alive. There was speculation, would this kid get to the major league level by the September call-ups? I think there's a pretty good chance it's going to happen now. All in all, it was a pretty amazing night. I'll give you that one. I deserve that one. All in all, great night for Casey Mize, a great night for the Tigers organization, and a lot to look forward to when this kid makes his major league debut. I tell you what, let's go full circle. Let's end it with football. Northern Michigan Athletics released their 2019 football schedule, and we get to break that down here in the sports pen. It includes five home games, and for the first time since 2014, the Wildcats will open the season inside the Superior Dome. They'll do so with McKendry. We opened the season there last year and lost a tight one. Then week two, September 14th, we'll head down to Texas, take on UT of the Permian Basin. We played them last year and won that one 27-22. It was the first ever meeting between the two schools looking to make it back-to-back seasons over the Falcons. Then week three, September 21st, will be the GLIAC opener. It'll also be homecoming as Davenport comes to town. Davenport beat us in overtime at their place last year, but the last time they came to the Superior Dome two years ago, it was homecoming, and Northern won that game 24-14. In week four, traveling to take on Ferris State, the defending conference champions and national runner-ups, that closes out the month of September. We open October at home with Wayne State, a team we beat last year, scoring two touchdowns in the final two minutes. First road win of the Kyle Nystrom era, first win over Wayne State since 2014. October 12th, we traveled to Houghton, the short trip, for the battle for the minor cup, another one-score decision last year as Michigan Tech ended up sneaking away with it at the Superior Dome. 
Then, October 19th, Grand Valley State, a playoff team from last year, makes their second straight trip to the Superior Dome. The following week, we start out the month of November at Northwood. Final home game of the regular season is November 9th against Saginaw Valley State, and we close a regular season November 16th at Ashland. So 10 games on the schedule this year, officially released as of this afternoon. Well, a few more things to share before we sign off on this Tuesday afternoon. Jersey numbers have been assigned to the newest Packers, the draft class of 2019. 87 and 52 will be amongst the uniform numbers given out to this year's draft class. Is it too early to start replacing Jordy Nelson and Clay Matthews? As for you Packer fans, I know Jordy's not been here a while. We've had time for that. Jay Sternbergen, the new tight end out of Texas A&M, is going to be wearing 87. Rashawn Gary will be holding down number 52. I tell you what, let's send you into the evening. Let's end your work day by giving you the MLB scoreboard for tonight. St. Louis visiting Washington, game two of that series, 7.05 first pitch. Adam Wainwright is opposed by Annabelle Sanchez. Then the Tigers visit the Phillies at 7.05. Spencer Turnbull is against Vincent Velasquez. Oakland at Boston for a 7.10 start. Rick Porcello gets a start against Aaron Brooks. Cincinnati takes on the Mets in New York. Jason Vargas opposed by Luis Castro. That game game will throw the first pitch at 7:10. Also at 7:10, the Cleveland's visit the Marlins. Trevor Bauer is opposed by Sandy Alcantara. The Padres visit the Braves at 7:20. Chris Paddock is opposed by Julio Teran. 7:40, the Rockies take on the Brewers. Herman Marquez takes on Ulysses Chichin. At 7:40, Houston visits Minnesota. Michael Pineda is opposed by Garrett Cole. 8:05, Pittsburgh visits Texas. Jordan Lyles takes on Adrian Sampson. 8.15, the Rays visit the Royals. Blake Snell is opposed by Jason Junis. The Yankees open up a series in Arizona, taking on the Diamondbacks. Zach Grinke against CeCe Sabathia at 9.40. Dodgers take on the Giants at 9.45. Walker Bueller, Andrew Pomeranz. Then at 10.07, the Blue Jays visit the Angels. Clay Buckholes is opposed by Griffin Canning. And finally, the Cubs visit the Mariners at 10:10. Cole Hamels is opposed by King Felix Hernandez. Baltimore and Chicago postponed for this evening. So that is a look around the MLB scoreboard games coming up tonight. The Tigers did announce a few roster moves earlier this afternoon, just before we took the air. Jordy Mercer has been reinstated from the 10-day injured list. Victor Reyes has been called up from AAA Toledo. That's the corresponding move with Tyson Ross being placed on the paternity list. So Mercer and Reyes back up to the big club, Ross to the paternity list tell you what let's end the day with something at least i think is cool because i have ties to the area about an hour ago the nfl officially filed to trademark the duluth eskimos the duluth eskimos for those of you who don't know were an nfl team for five years from 1923 until 1927 they since moved to omaha they became the omaha tornadoes and finally folded but they were a professional football team around the same time as the Packers. Canton, Akron, a lot of those small-level communities, small markets were getting pro football teams. Only Green Bay survived, but Duluth did have one at one time. So you see this a lot in minor league baseball. For one night a year, teams will change their name, their logo, their color schemes, their uniforms. They'll wear special uniforms. They'll have a weird nickname. It's a popularity thing. It's to promote something. Rumor has it that one NFL team will play a game as the Duluth Eskimos this season. That they will wear the colors, dark blue, not navy, but a special kind of blue called midnight, and white. 
and they will be the Duluth Eskimos for one game this season. Again, these are unconfirmed rumors, but the NFL did file for the trademark Duluth Eskimos a little over an hour ago. So who could be the team to don the colors? Well, the popular choice has got to be the Minnesota Vikings. Ole Hogsrud owned the team, and he sold it to the NFL for $1 in 1927 under the promise that any team that would set up shop in Minnesota, any professional football team, he would get at least 10% of the ownership rights to. He had to wait 33 years, but when the Minnesota Vikings came in 1960, he automatically owned 10% of the Vikings. He got it for $1, and he continued to own his 10% stake of the Vikings until his death in 1976. That's a pretty good owner. You have a small market football franchise, you flip it, ended up being a 10% stakeholder in the Minnesota Vikings. Now, the Eskimos did a lot of barnstorming. They actually helped grow the game quite a bit by doing so in the 1920s. They did have a home field. It was a multi-purpose facility. It was shared with the Duluth Superior Duke semi-pro baseball team. This is where it's really cool for me because Athletic Park was demolished in 1941. In its place, they built Wade Stadium, which, as of last summer, was my home broadcast booth with the Duluth Huskies. So let's talk for a second. How real is this? Is there a real possibility the Vikings or some other team could appear as the Duluth Eskimos for a game? I would think this would be the year to do it. It is the 100th anniversary of the NFL. They're doing the special Thursday night kickoff game between the Bears and the Packers, the league's two oldest teams. They're celebrating their history and their heritage. And the Duluth Eskimos were one of the first teams to ever play in the NFL. Honestly, it's good marketing. You do a few stadium promotions at U.S. Bank Stadium if it is indeed the Vikings who do this. You would think there'd be some other cities that had teams back in the day. They might want to do the same thing. There were teams in Canton and Akron and Muncie. You would think some of those area teams, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Indianapolis, you'd think they would try to do something like that. It'd be good marketing. If you've ever seen the movie Leatherheads, it's based on the Duluth Eskimos. Actually sent three players to the NFL Hall of Fame in their five-year history. Something to keep an eye on, but for the NFL's 100th anniversary, I wouldn't be surprised at all if a team does appear as a Duluth Eskimos for a game. Duluth did try to apply for an NFL, well, they kind of tried to apply for an NFL franchise back in 2015. They filed a juncture to try and get a team to come to Duluth, Minnesota, although it's unclear that it ever made its way to the NFL, which makes me think it wasn't a serious bid. But maybe this is the NFL's way of throwing them a bone. I'm excited to see if this actually happens for the upcoming season. That's a game worth going to. I tell you what, with that, let's call it a day. Let's send it into your evening. As always, appreciate you joining me here in the sports panel on ESPN-UP. As always, if you missed any part of the episode, you missed my interview with Dave Burkett earlier this afternoon, you can hear it on demand. It'll be in the on-demand section of the free mobile app, which you can get from the Apple iStore or Google Play. A reminder, this evening we will have the NBA playoffs here on ESPN Radio. ESPN-UP will carry the ESPN National Broadcast. Join Adam and Coach as the Rockets take on the Warriors, Game 2 from Oakland. Signing off from the ESPN-UP studios, my name's Tanner Hoops. Thanks for listening to the Sports Pen. We'll see you tomorrow. Dugatsi here, tune into the Sports Pen with Tanner Hoops. My man, what a great name for sports radio, Tanner Hoops. He's on weekdays at 4 o'clock on ESPN-UP, WZAM, Ishpeming Marquette.